Welcome to A Better Press for a Better World, a series from the Michigan Interscholastic Press Association. We explore the world of media through conversations with professional journalists and others in the media industry. And now, your host, MIPA's Executive Director, Jeremy Steele. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeremy Steele. I'm the Executive Director of the Michigan Interscholastic Press Association uh, and a faculty member in the School of Journalism at Michigan State University. I am joined today again for our Better Press for a Better World series by three professional journalists who I used to work with when I was a student here at Michigan State. So it's great to see all three of them again. Let me tell you about our guest. Steve Eater is an investigative reporter for the New York Times, where he writes about federal the federal government under President Trump, as well as uh, Trump's related businesses. He previously covered the 2016 presidential campaign, writing in-depth articles about the candidates from Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders to Jeb Bush and Donald Trump. He joined the Times in 2012 in the sports department. Uh, in 2018, Steve was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Hi, Steve. Hey. Eric Morath reports on labor, economics, and policy from the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau. Uh, previously, Eric covered the Treasury and Commerce Departments, the Postal Service, and bankruptcy news. Uh, prior to joining Dow Jones in 2008, he covered the U.S. auto industry in Detroit. Hey, Eric, how are you? Hi, very well. Thanks for having me. And Melissa Sanchez is a reporter at ProPublica Illinois, focused on immigrants and low-wage workers. Her work examining Chicago's punitive ticketing and debt collection system prompted major city reforms, including the end of driver's license suspensions for unpaid parking tickets and debt relief. She previously reported on topics ranging from education to absentee ballot fraud for the Chicago Reporter, Catalyst Chicago, El Nuevo Herald in Miami, and the Yakima Herald Republic in Washington. She lives in Chicago. Hi, Melissa. It's nice to see you again. Nice to see you all. So welcome, everybody. Uh, for those of you who are joining us on Zoom right now, you can use the Q&A tool. Uh, you've got a button at the bottom of your screen to send us in any questions that you might have for our journalists today. Uh, we will answer as many of those questions as we can. Uh, if you happen to be watching us right now on YouTube Live, you can use the, uh, the comment thread there to try to send us questions as well. And again, we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. So let me just start by asking all three of you, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected and changed the way that you do your job. Steve, do you, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm right here um, in New York City. So we've had a, it's been a pretty, um, you know, unprecedented stretch here. Um, haven't been to the office. So it was, you know, a Monday in early March when editors sort of came around and said, we might want to start thinking about working from home for a bit. And um, we kind of scattered from the office. It turned out later that a number of my colleagues had already been infected with COVID. And, um, you know, we scattered um, sort of hunkered down, you know, all of us at home working in our apartments. And, um, you know, here we are, um, it's been about eight weeks, you know, eight weeks later, and, you know, had to make adjustments to try to, um, you know, to, to, to try to meet the moment. Um, it's been a, uh, you know, a really, you know, incredible stretch um, and an important time to be a reporter. Um, I think a lot of us have sort of you know, we sort of dropped other things we were working on and, you know, tried to find a way to be a part of the story because it's just, uh, you know, 
really important and um, sort of the story of our time. So I've done that and been writing about various aspects of, you know, of COVID, anything from, you know, looking at flight data to antibody testing to um, how the president's businesses are faring during this period. So it's, it's been uh, fascinating and important and we're living it. So. And, and you're doing all of that reporting work not from leave, just from your apartment. You haven't left, basically. From from right here and li- live from my bedroom, you know, in <laughs> in, uh, in in New York City. Yeah, um, it's yeah. We're working the phones. Um, you know, there's been a few times, especially lately, where I'm like, gosh, in a normal time, we just jump on a plane and go where we got to go and do the story. But um, you make it work. It's not really you know um, perfectly possible at the moment. So you make it. You know, you make it work. You're you're you know, on Slack and Signal and messaging all day with colleagues and emailing and talking on the phone and you're trying to replicate, you know, something of that like natural newsroom experience, um, you know, but you just, uh, you know, in some ways um, the story focuses you, you know, and it's, this, and it's, a, it's a, sometimes it's sort of an escape from some of the, the strangeness of all that's happening is just to be able to focus on the stories. And Eric, how how has life changed for you as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, so uh, similarly, I'm hunkered down in my basement here in the D.C. suburbs um, and have been, you know, replaced my regular co-workers with, you know, my kids running around and building Legos. So it's a little different. Um, you know, the thing I, I definitely miss with a big story like this, I would have loved to be out and about in the country and talking to people. Uh, we've actually been you know, focusing more on, on the human stories. And sometimes the Wall Street Journal, we do a lot of number stories and we focus on those human stories. And it's, it's strange to do those without being able to meet and, and talk to the people um, in person. And then another change is, you know, part of the reason I'm in Washington is to interface with the federal agencies. So for example, when we get uh, economic data, there's usually a briefing that goes along with that and some time for us to prepare our stories. Um, so now when we have the most attention paid to um, our coverage, we have no safety net. We don't have uh, 30 minutes or 15 minutes heads up to kind of think through this. It comes out and we have to be ready and more prepared than we've ever been before to break the news. And Melissa, how about you in Chicago? How has your world as a reporter there changed uh, in the time that we've been dealing with the pandemic? And I think really similar to Stephen, Eric, um, some, I mean, I have a child who's very young and it's been really difficult to balance work and, and making sure this kid's alive. He's almost three. And so he demands a lot of attention and, you know, we put him in front of like Dora the Explorer for hours on end and just feel guilt about it. So that's, it's, um, I'm not working as much as I was before. So just my hours are, are different. And, and luckily I work at a place that's really understanding about that. Um, we all were working at ProPublica. We just do investigative reporting. It's just long form, big projects. We all had big things that we were doing before this all happened. So everything got put on a shelf essentially for the time being. And we all had to kind of figure out how and what we could add to the coverage right now that still serves our mission of accountability journalism. Um, and that's been hard because like the news is moving so fast and stories get killed often because somebody else will do it first, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Um, and, and so we kind of have to deal with that and like roll with the punches a lot more. Um, and so it's, it's, been, it's been really difficult. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a street reporter. I like talking to people in person and 
it's, it's a lot harder to gain trust with some folks. Um, you know, using, I'm on my cell phone all, all day. It's not, it's not the same as talking to people in person. But um, yeah, I, I, all my, my day is spent like here in my little, in my bedroom <laughs> um, while the kid is screaming downstairs and my husband's also working full time. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a challenge, but you know, one day this will be over and I'm really looking forward to being back in the office surrounded by colleagues. Um, it's, it's hard to work alone. So what are the, what are some of the stories that you all have been working on recently at your, uh, at your newspapers or media outlets? Um, I mean, like for me, be, be, even before the, all this happened, I was working on a project related to, um, immigrant workers in factories and I was really interested in uh, a community of Central American workers here and I, I set that to the side except for I didn't really because we figured that all of us should continue to do work related to COVID but around the topics that we already had expertise in. So um, the stories that I've been trying to do are related to conditions in manufacturing for temporary workers that, that I'm hoping to do more work on um, indigenous Guatemalans and how they're faring here right now in Chicago. Um, so it's kind of all related to the existing work I was doing, but just trying to figure out um, what the accountability angles might be around COVID right now. I've been, you know, so my beat is economics and specifically looking at the labor market. So that went from a very routine and predictable uh, beat because we kind of had a very steady and strong labor market to one that got flipped upside down. And so um, I went from talking to people one month about how many jobs they're adding and how long this expansion could last to talking about being in the worst uh, recession since the the Great Depression. So it was quite a, quite a change, but uh, like I said, a chance to do some more personal storytelling, talking to uh, people that have been affected by this, that have lost their jobs, have lost their businesses. Um, and, and even some of the, the things that policymakers maybe didn't see at, at the start. Uh, for example, we did a story that got a lot of attention about um, how about half of workers would stand to make more on unemployment benefits than they did at their jobs previously. And how that complicates um, the labor market and businesses and certainly, you know, maybe is a benefit to workers in the short term, but many of them, you know, of course, want to go back to work as soon as possible. Like all, like all of us want to go back to visit with our colleagues as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of pivoted from, um, you know, when this all was first hitting, we were finishing a project that we had been working on related to President Trump and his appointments, his, his judicial appointments. Um, so we filed that and um, that ran in mid-March. Then I've just really tried to find some different, you know, areas of the story. I think the thing that I've kept in mind in the different, um, you know, COVID-related stories that I've worked on has been accountability um, and sort of looking at the decisions that are being made by, um, you know, any number of people who are kind of calling the shots in terms of um, government response, business response, um, health care response. Um, so for one early piece, for example, we looked at, um, you know, inequity and in, in getting access to tests. You know, how was it that teens, sports teams and celebrities were talking about getting tested for COVID while healthcare workers and others um, who were showing extreme symptoms weren't able to get access to tests. Um, you know, for another piece, we looked at, at travel there, the, the, the notion of how, um, you know, of, flow of people into the United States um, and flights and, and we're able to get data showing, um, you know, how many flights had actually landed from China in the United States um, after some of the restrictions went into place and you're sort of checking in real time some of the things that we're being told about um, the way that, that the response is working. 
from the government. And that's, I think, kind of the underlying um, theme in the reporting that I've tried to focus on, um, you know, during this. It's, it's hard, though, to almost pick stories because there's so many different things you could do. It's, it, there's so many different things to look at. It's, and right now I have a bunch of things I'm kicking around, um, you know, in progress, and it's hard to, it feels like there's so much to do and, um, you know, so little time to do them. And like Melissa said, I'm waiting to see our stories in Wall Street Journal or ProPublica. So it's very, um, you know, competitive too. Are, are any of your stories not related to COVID-19? Are you still kind of all immersed in, in that as the major issue that you're covering? Every single story has to do with COVID-19. I, I have a couple that I was working on and they were totally shelved. And it was kind of, it's almost funny that we were like, in the first like, you know, couple of weeks where we were starting to focus most of our reporting on that, we're like, well, maybe we could just slip it in and resurface it. And now it just, you look at the story and it's just like, it doesn't even relate to life now. So it just, that kind of goes, goes on the back burner for some time. Yeah, I think, I mean, like in ProPublica, we're having discussions about it. What, at what point do you resurface things? And like, maybe there is an appetite, maybe on a Saturday morning to read something that doesn't have to do with COVID, but um, it's just really hard. Like, I think we're just going to have to keep having those conversations every three or four weeks. Like, is it time yet for this one? Like, maybe, maybe in a month, maybe in a month. Um, but it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. So I think we all, we've all been asking that question. We've, we've got some good questions starting to come in from folks who are watching us live. Um, Morgan is wondering how you get a variety of stories when everything that you're doing involves COVID-19 right now. Is it, are, are you at risk within your newsrooms of being fatigued by this issue? And, and are your readers getting fatigued by this? Or are you, you, are, you, you, are you feeling like you're getting enough variety in what you're doing still? So, it, no, go ahead. Go, go ahead, Steve. No, it's, I mean, it's just so, fun. I mean, look, as a journalist, you want to be involved in the, in the big stories and the stuff that really matters and affecting people. And um, so, I mean, I, I, I certainly feel like, I don't know, variety is the word I'm, that comes to mind, but just sort of the importance of the stories. Um, it's not, you can't, I don't have any fatigue. You know, maybe if we get a few years down the line and we're still kind of in the middle of the, of the storm on all of this, maybe we'll start to feel that. But right now, it just, it feels so urgent that I don't, I mean, I don't have any fatigue on it. I just think it's, it's up to us to sort of rise up to the moment to be able to do the right stories. So, um, you know, it's, um, it has, that hasn't been a challenge for, for me and for m most of my colleagues, as far as I could tell. I think the details matter more now and that, and that helps really create the variety of stories where as in the past, I might have, just, okay, I want to do one big story that surveys where the U S economy stands now, you know, now I'm dividing this and writing about restaurant workers. I'm writing about small businesses. I'm writing about manufacturers. I'm writing about people in Kentucky and Hawaii. Um, you know, we would not be doing stories on Kentucky's labor market, like on a normal circumstance, but because they're leading the nation in jobless claims, we're doing stories on Kentucky's labor market. And we have another six different States that we're going to hit in the next two weeks. So it's just, there's so much more depth and, and interest in it. Um, but I will say that like, there's other folks that in the newsroom that they feel a little frustrated because their beats are cooler and they're trying to get, how can they be part of this story? And, and, and several of them have come and joined the econ team because our, our story went from kind of predictable again to, uh, to quite busy. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think like in my shop, some people are fatigued already. Um, I, I, there's some days when I feel like I don't want to do this, but I think Steve is right. It is way too important to be like that exhausted by it at the moment. Um, one thing that we're we're trying not consistently, but occasionally, um, I mean, just different approaches to telling a story. Like ProPublica is almost like sometimes just very formulaic, like accountability, but. Um, there, we've had some success with like surprising stories that are just very narrative one-person interviews that have been like the most read stories like in the history of ProPublica. And so I think sometimes like it, it can be a story told, you know, you can tell a story a lot of different ways, but the way you tell it or focusing on a single individual has been really helpful. And readers um, don't seem to lose their appetite for it. I don't know what it's like for you guys, but our numbers are just like off the parts right now. Um, people can't get enough of this. Yeah. Can, can I add one more point to this too, is that, the fact that we're living the story the way we are, I think makes a difference too. Um, you know, we're always to some extent living the stories that we report or we have, you know, you develop, you know, uh, um, you know, that passion to do the stories that are in front of you, but this is like unique. I mean, it's like affecting everybody, you know, in some way and personally affecting. So you're, it's, it's, it makes it um, feel all the more urgent. It also affects your creativity in terms of how you think about which stories you want to pursue and which ones feel like they should be prioritized. And, um, just that you're, you know, this sort of shared experience across the country of everybody relating to it. Um, it, it affects your creativity and curiosity. And I think it can be in a pretty good way. We've, we've got a couple questions from folks who are wondering about kind of how your organizations are keeping operating while everybody's working from home. Um, Jackson is wondering, how are your organizations staying on schedule with publications? Obviously, Steve and Eric, you both work for uh, news organizations that are still putting out a daily print newspaper. Um, what sorts of things are you doing in your your day-to-day -day operation to stay connected with your colleagues and to kind of keep on track with your with, with the daily news cycle? Yeah, we have a daily, within the economics team, we have a daily video call um, to try to keep in touch with people. But, and then beyond that, it's like really like about over communicating. Um, and it's a big challenge because everybody is pursuing these same stories and everyone's interested in it. So part of the wall street journal focuses on news about different parts of the country in different States. And now of course we're running headlong into them as we're focusing our econ uh, coverage in there. And so now it's about trying to coordinate and be a stronger organization as opposed to, you know, running into each other um, all the time. But yeah, it's, it's definitely um, a big challenge. I think, the good thing is that I think journalists are better prepared now because we're very much not tied to the print deadlines anymore, very much online. And I think if this would have happened 10 years ago, it would have been even harder because all the focus would have still been on getting the paper ready. I think a lot of that holds. I mean, we're similarly trying to, you know, not run into each other out there on stories and, and you know, our editors, I think, are doing a good job of, of trying to make sure everyone has their lanes and just operationally we're working on stories that um, make the most sense for, you know, for the moment. Um, and there's also just good, like, good natural collaborations and start working with colleagues you haven't worked with before. You sort of, you know, spark up a, a conversation on Slack or a shared interest or whatever. And then um, there's just good reporter to reporter creativity and collaboration that's that's going on um you know and i don't have a great sense of how the, you know in terms of like the uh jeremy asked about printing a paper and all of that i mean we have people out there working really hard and doing kind of an essential service of providing a, a newspaper to people who want to read the paper um and we have a lot of people out there and as does the wall street journal that that want to see the print form 
of the New York Times. And so, you know, we really, you know, hats off and credit to the, to the people who make that um, part of the operation happen. We don't, because of the way we're structured, we don't see it as much um, as directly as we used to. I've worked in buildings that had print presses, you know, right in them. And it's not the case with the, with the times. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of people, a lot of stuff you don't see that goes into, um, you know, putting out these kinds of newspapers and, and the, and then the online presence is obviously it's 24 hours around the clock, you know, across the world, you know, amazing, amazing collaboration of editors and reporters, the amount of effort and energy and attention that goes into getting out that report. Um, the variety of stories that you're seeing in, in the New York Times, um, I'm really proud of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, the Wall Street Journal is doing great work. The ProPublica is doing a lot of publications are doing great work. It's an important time. And like, I think it's neat to see these organizations sort of, um, you know, meet, meet that challenge. What, what tools do you all use as you're communicating back with your newsrooms? You're just doing email and, and Zoom calls like this, or are there, are there particular tools or techniques that, that you all have at your news operation? I think like Zoom is a really big one for us. Like we have daily meetings on Zoom. Um, we have Slack, which is just like an inter-office chat system, um, and phone calls and email. That's what we use. Yeah, I mean we're we're on Slack. Slack is 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 pretty has become pretty important through this. Um, AV, you know, Google Hangouts, Google Chats, Google Hangouts has been another one that we use a lot. Um, you know, the Signal app, the encrypted Signal app is good, too, for communicating with, um, you know, with sources. But, you know, as much as all these things are great and they're hugely useful, I like to pick up the phone, you know. And, and I think a lot of my colleagues do it. It, it means especially the people who sit near you, people you work with a lot. Um, you could go back and forth on Slack and such all day. But it's, you know, still good to pick up the phone and, you know, call your colleagues and talk it over. And, um, you know, and be a human being, ask them what else is going on and, and, you know, you know, replicate some of that office experience and some of the stuff. It's sometimes just talking with people, great ideas come up. So, um, we're very in touch. I feel very connected to colleagues still. Um, and operationally like, you know, email of course too, is still, is still there. It's still a big part of it. What, uh, obviously all three of you are doing your work from home and we've got several folks who are, who have questions about strategies that you use to try to get good interviews with people when you have to do those interviews over the telephone or over video conference like this. Are, are there some techniques that you found that, that work to kind of replicate that in-person experience at all? I, I spend more time than I normally would just asking them to sort of tell me what things look like. Um, because I can't see it. I don't have any sense of even what they look like necessarily if I'm not in a video call. So um, a more bigger focus on that. And then, you know, I think it's good technique always in interviews, but really asking two or three times different questions that try to get at their emotional response um, to all this. I think that's a very important part of the story, but, you know, it's something that you're not going to be able to necessarily see. Um, so trying to get them to tell you that is important. I spend a lot of time at the beginning of every phone call talking to people just about how they're doing, like, um, in person, like, I'm, I'm a pretty open book with folks I talk to, but it's a little bit harder over the phones. So I spend a lot more time doing small talk, asking about people's kids and, like, home situation and health and sharing, like, what I'm dealing with. And I think for me, like, you know, revealing, like, whatever, whatever challenges, like, I'm dealing with, with, like, the screaming child, et cetera, kind of helps disarm people. And, um, and that helps 
um, create a little bit of trust. And that's, that's a good tip, Eric, about asking about what things look like. Sometimes I'll ask folks if they can take pictures or do like even record a video of themselves in the space where they are. Sometimes we can use them in stories and often we can't. Um, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't do it. It's not the same as, as meeting somebody in person, but it's close as I can get. I think those are great advice. I was going to, you know, just sort of echoing Melissa, just be, um, you know, be a human being, you know, this is something very human about what we're all going through here and, um, having a little bit extra time for small talk and, and just, you know, how's it going? What's it like, you know, and relating the experience a little bit can go a long way into, um, breaking the ice and, and having a, a better conversation with somebody, a better interview. I have found the upshot is that people, a lot of people have time on their hands and are more available. Um, and I don't feel nearly the, Oh, I, I got to get off the phone or I got to go. Like, sometimes it's like, usually I, I hate to end interviews. I always feel like I want the person to say they're, they're done. I don't have any more questions to ask. But sometimes I'm like, yeah, thanks. I got to go. <laughs> like we've been on talking for an hour. <laughs> people don't really have to go to the theater. I mean, right now it's, you know, uh, unfortunately. How, how do you all go about finding your sources? I mean, you can't go out and do person on the street interviews in this environment, obviously. Um, and I know a lot of what you do isn't necessarily go out and talk to random people, but how, how do you find sources when you're, you know, stuck in your bedroom or your home office or the basement or wherever? Yeah, it's more important than ever to find real people to, to illuminate these stories. Um, you know, I find, um, you know, through some, you know, various channels like business groups and labor unions and worker advocates can kind of point me to real people. But we're also having a lot of luck um, using our own platform to find people, whether it's as simple as when someone responds to me to complain about the worst story they've ever read. I said, great, I'd love to interview for you my, my next story. Um, but we're also now using tools where we're directly asking readers um, online how they've been affected. And then it, with being up front and saying, we might come back and call at you. And, and we've gotten thousands of those responses and they've been good people to be men and women on the street um, virtually. Yeah, we, we do a lot of that, like the engagement reporting with the tens, you know, thousands of responses from folks. I've all, I feel like there's two kinds of reporters, like the reporters who look at a system from the top and then work their way down and find like the people for their, the, the big picture stories. And I've always been more of the reverse. I kind of start from the bottom and work my way up. So I, um, I don't go into things knowing like I want to do a story about like this, this, this topic that's happening or this, this, this problem. But I, I just talk to people about what they're dealing with. And so when this started, when we all kind of shifted to working from home, you know, I was in this like land of like manufacturing workers and on my cell phone, I might have had names and numbers of like a hundred people I've talked to over the past six months for this other story. And I just started calling them one by one and saying like, Hey, remember me? Like I'm, shit, I'm putting that other story to the side, but here's what I'm interested in. I'm just curious about how work is going, how your family's doing. And I had these conversations over and over and over with people. And I told people like, how's, how, how's your family? How's like, how's your, your relatives who work with you? What do they work in? And, um, and kind of that's how I find right in this moment. That's how I've been finding people like through word of mouth, through this, you know, this community of like poor working immigrants in Chicago. Um, so, and as a result of doing that early on and then checking in with people occasionally, um, I get calls. I just got a call this morning from the sister of somebody I'd, I'd been interested in for a while. 
telling me that her mother just died in the hospital of COVID. And then she kind of gave me some ideas for a story that I haven't seen yet in Chicago related to, related to the death. And so I may or may not ever follow that as a big thing, but I, I, sort of, I sort of work just with my existing people and then try to expand that network. And then eventually I have to think of like, what is the big system story here and look and work my way up and figure out who the, who the experts are. So great ideas. I don't have a whole lot to add, but two thoughts. Um, what, you know, one of them is, um, you know, every call I always ask, I get to the end of the call, especially if it's a good call. Say, so who else should I be talking to? Um, any other ideas that other people out there in your network or, or um, anybody that might just, you know, have some good perspective to share on this topic and, um, that always, you know, un- unfailably, if um, someone wants to be even the slightest bit helpful, they'll send you a few names and that leads to more people. And if you keep having those kinds of uh, interactions with people, you get more and more. The other thing is, um, you know, it's, it's just it's social media. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're doing good targeted searching of social media to find people, um, you know, who, if you're working on something and you're trying to kind of piece it together and looking for sort of the real life examples, you can find things. I mean, one just quick example, we did a piece on antibody testing uh, for COVID antibodies. And we were, you know, this was two or three weeks ago now, a little earlier, you know, everything in this feels like, you know, a week feels like a year, but like, um, you know, who doctors, you know, medical facilities, who is giving out these tests already? What are they thinking? What are they doing? And I was able to find just some you know, folks on Facebook who were posting that, hey, my doctor's office or our medical facility, you know, we're, we're doing COVID antibody testing. And they were like kind of at the front end of it. And we just, you know, called those people, hey, saw you on Facebook, let's talk. And, um, you know, often people are eager to tell you about the things they're doing, um, especially right now. So um, that, that kind of stuff has worked pretty well in addition to, all the great suggestions, Eric and Melissa. Uh, Kate over on YouTube is wondering what you're doing at your news organizations to get visuals to go along with your stories, right? If, if you all are stuck at home as the reporters, what about your photographers or your videographers? How, how are they doing their jobs and how are you getting those important visuals to go along with the, the work that you're doing? Well, you know, our photographers are still, you know, are still out there, um, you know, doing, you know, out, you know, taking doing a risk and, and taking photos and, and um, it's really grateful, you know, for that and, and, you know, video the same. I think there's an additional emphasis probably on graphics, but it's such a story that lends itself so well to graphics, um, to visually explaining stories. And um, Eric can probably talk a lot more about this than I can, but that's a big, another big aspect of how to illustrate, you know, a, a story and, I've said from day one, this is a huge data story. Um, everything about COVID is a data story. And so there's, um, you know, fortunate to have a really great um, graphics department that's able to do amazing things to illustrate this, this uh, in a different way. And um, so. Our photo editors have been coaching um, some of our sources when, when they don't think it's safe or it's not possible to get someone to go out there um, you know, having, you know, their boyfriend or girlfriend take the photo or uh, even teaching them how to do a, a good selfie. Um, that's probably not something that under normal times we would encourage, but uh, we've been doing that a lot more. And then like Steve says, you know, I mean, every story, any economic story that we're doing now has two, three, four, you know, charts and graphs in it. And there's been a lot more appetite um, to make that the primary um, art that goes with the story. Yeah, I'd say all of that. And then we, um, we, we do a lot of illustrations too, um, instead of portraits. But we have, I think, I don't know if this is a fact, but it looks like we've cut back on photography 
um, probably like there's like a, a, we weigh the risks each time and does the story need it or can we do this some other way? So maybe that's why I've seen more illustrations in our stories. Ian over on YouTube is wondering whether you're seeing any changes to big J journalism. Obviously with what you each of you are dealing with at your own organizations, you've had to change the way you do your work, at least in the short term. But are you seeing any, any longer term changes? Are you starting to see um, bigger changes to journalism as a result of the impact of, of the pandemic? I'm really concerned about the fate of, of local journalism, which I love. And I think we're going to see this in a bunch of different fields, like, you know, kind of a lot of retailers as well. But I think that this pandemic is sort of going to accelerate industries that are already in decline. And I think it's really going to hit uh, local journalism hard, which is just scary. Um, the other thing is, I, I guess, a possible upshot to this. I think there may be more interest in allowing people to work from home and work remotely. Um, the journal is the type of place where, of course, there's people that do that and do that full time, but it's also been a place where there's been a really high value in having people in the newsroom, which, which I can understand and see, but I think um, seeing that people perform at such a high level, not being in the office, there's some, some reasons to not be, some reasons to encourage people to be out and reporting rather than reporting to their desk at 9 a.m. every every day. And, and I hope that's uh, that's something we can continue. How, how do each of you deal with just the stress of your jobs during this time? Obviously, I mean, being a journalist has never been a stress-free job anyway, but now you're stuck at home with kids and families and dogs and, um, you know, not that ability to escape also from that environment. So how, how are each of you kind of dealing with just the stress that, that we all are dealing with during, during this time? Well, I mean, I, it's, I don't know how healthy it is, but sort of doubling down on the story, um, you know, when you're, when you can't control the other things that are going on around you, um, you know, as a journalist, you, you know, it's, it's easy to say, you know, look, I, this is the one thing I can do in all of this is to, to focus on the story. I mean, and it, it's, it's, um, it can be, uh, you know, that can be tough. It can be, you know, but that's, you know, try to tune out the other things that you maybe have less control over in the middle of a pandemic and say, are, know, are any of us surprised that Steve's answer is to do more journalism? Yeah. His stress relief, his stress relief is journalism. Uh, I think it is, it's been really challenging because you're, since you're at home and you're always on your computer and on your phone that you, I just noticed, I was like, Oh my God, it's seven, it's seven thirty, it's eight, it's nine. I'm still working because I, you know, but because I'm taking little breaks during the day to, to deal with the family situation or make the kids lunch, things like that. And so I think that, that that is a concern. I mean, one of the things that's been nice is my organization's been trying to encourage and I've been trying to take advantage of, like taking the full day off, like take a Tuesday and just take the whole day off and put up the away message and try to take a break because it's really hard day to day to not work. 10 hours. Um, so sometimes you just have to make the hard break and make them call somebody else, make them uh, reach another editor. Yeah, I've been trying to really protect my weekends and not work, which has been great, like to cook or to do something, um, go for walks at night with my husband and kid. 
um, you know, in the middle of the day and I still have, you know, we still have to make sure this person's alive and not going crazy. So before this call, I, I took, I took an hour and I spent some time building Legos and reading books and putting him down for a nap. And I mean, sometimes I'll end up taking a nap with him and it's like, I don't know what to do. Like, sorry guys, I can't work the whole time. So it's, it's not exactly stress relief because caring for a child is still like a lot of work. I can't wait to have a vacation by myself somewhere. <laughs> um, but I think kind of for me, like setting some clear boundaries of like, you know, when the kid goes down for, for sleep, like I have to not look at my computer anymore. I'm also hearing it from him. He's like, he, he tells me, I need an office too. I need to have a meeting too. I need to get on a work call or he'll cry if he sees me on the phone. Like, I don't want you to make any more calls. And so he's also like helpful at like keeping me from, from overdoing it. If I was at the office, it would be way easier to overdo it. There's a babysitter, there's childcare, et cetera. But I'm also forced to not stress because there's only so much you can do and like maintain some sanity with everybody else in, in your home. Is, is, your, is your workload similar to what it was pre-pandemic? Are, are you all working the same, less, or, or more? I've kind of lost track. Way, <laughs> way more. Yeah. Like, it's like not even close. Like, the, the nice thing, the reason I'd encourage people to consider economics journalism is because we have weekends. Um, you know, it's, it's fairly predictable. It's a lot of enterprise. Um, not a ton of, of breaking news type of stuff. Um, you know, or if it, the news breaks at like convenient times, like eight thirty in the morning, um, it, you know, and this has been different. I've been asked as, as we've had more people coming to our team that don't really know about economics, I'm doing coaching and editing with them in addition to trying to do my regular job. Um, but you know, I mean, that's, that's what we're, we're all here for. We're all want to cover the the biggest stories of our lifetimes and you know this is at least the biggest one in 20 years yeah i think i mean it's i, I find it a little hard it's a, that's a good question it's a little hard to compare um because like like i was saying earlier kind of living the story and doing the story at the same time so it's almost like the you're sort of always thinking about the pandemic about COVID, about the ramifications of everything and so it's almost hard to separate it is it is too difficult to kind of get that clear separation like Eric and Melissa are saying from working to not working the days sort of blur into each other, you know, a bit. I mean, a couple more, I, I would just to that, to that last question, trying to get a, a fair amount of sunlight. I think that's really helpful. I've never appreciated like sunlight as much as I have until this, um, this period, just like, you know, because you're not outside quite the same way that you normally um, would be. And um, I've also really enjoyed having, you know, my dogs with me. Um, I think that's a good stress relief and, you know, you're working hard all day, but like right now I have one of my dogs between my, you know, just like hanging out on my lap, like, you know, with me right here. So that's a big, that's one of the sort of nice, you know, um, unusual parts of getting to work from home and just having like your, you know, your pets around and, you know, my wife's working in the other room and it's just, you know, we're, you manage through those things and um, it makes it a little easier. All three of you do a lot with accountability journalism, obviously. Um, and Victoria is wondering what advice you have for student journalists who are out there covering hard stories that might upset administration, their principals or other administration, or students even, and teachers at their school. Well... Uh, Melissa, do you want to jump in on yeah. it? This I... is this is all you, Melissa. This is you're you're the rabble rouser. Not the rabble rouser. Mm -hmm. Just just do the story and just try to 
make sure you don't get any anything wrong in it. Those are so yeah. hard because you don't want the principal to then get pissed off because you like made some some dumb mistake in it. Um, I, I think I think it's really hard. Like one thing I've I've just gotten better at over time is being really upfront with people about what I'm doing, what I'm reporting on, like what, you know, you come in with some preconceived notion that might be wrong, but like at least like laying out what you think you know, the facts you understand um, and giving them a really good opportunity to tell you that you're wrong. And maybe, maybe, maybe you are on some points, but maybe they'll like, I mean, just totally letting people know what's happening before it gets published. That way it's like not a surprise when they read it. I think that's that's the biggest thing I would encourage and just fact check, fact check, fact check. Because if you make a mistake and then like, yeah, if you're principal, you don't want to get in trouble, right? So be, be really careful about what you what you put in writing. Yeah, you got to be fair and keep an open mind, you know, um, and sort of follow the facts where, where they lead you. And, um, you know, don't, you know, be careful, especially in your dealings with, you know, adults, with uh, administration, with this, that it's not, you know, you're not on a, it's not, Try to make it a little less personal and more of, uh, you know, your students, but you're doing a job to some extent. You're, you're doing, you know, you're acting as a journalist um, and that you're just trying to figure out where the facts take you. It's not necessarily like a personal um, cause in investigative reporting. It's, it's more of a, um, you know, of just sort of trying to bring transparency, trying to bring, um, you know, to ask questions of people who are making decisions which is, which is fair game. And that should turn the, turn the volume down a few notches for people who are um, getting upset. If you just take a really even keel approach, follow the facts, be fair, and don't surprise people. There's, it's really easy to get confused when you see you know, these television news conferences and they really become theater and adversarial. And you know, that's not really how it works uh, for me or I think any of us day to day. You know, you want to be, you know, professional and courteous. And um, like to echo what Melissa said, like, I fully believe in no surprises journalism. Don't, I don't think that you want to have the principal learn about the story from reading it in the paper. You want to go and say, this is what I know. I've talked to these different groups. You don't need to identify people by name if that's not comfortable for you. But you need to go through and say, these are all the facts that I understand and I need your response uh, so I can understand it. And then you get their response. And, and if it's contradictory, you put it in the story and then you're fair. And then, you know, people are going to be mad and you roll with it. But, uh, you know, you know you did your best to be fair and honest in the story. That's, yeah. This is really hard, but it's it can be helpful then like when the story runs to reach out to the principal or whoever and be like, hey, did you see this? Do you want to talk about it? Do you have any problems with what I wrote? Those calls are so scary, but they're really good. And then the, the person who you're you're going back to, they will appreciate it. They might they might tell you that they're mad about this part or this part, but they'll feel like they vented a little bit and they, they might respect you more for having made that call and, and checking in on them. You know, all, all three of you, I think, mentioned the importance of, of getting the facts correct and gathering your facts. What strategies do, do you all use to fact check? Where do we begin? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, fact checking is, uh, you know, is at the heart of it all. I mean, it's, 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 um, uh, it can be the most difficult and the most um, exhausting part of it, but it's, it's so important to make sure every word is right. I mean, there's, you know, different ways from um, for a longer piece of, you know, footnoting every sentence sometimes to make sure that you know where every, you know, basically you're holding yourself or you, if you're working with a team accountable to every sentence in a, in an article where, um, 
you know, where did this come from? How do we know this? What's our sourcing? How do we learn each fact? And you could go through the entire piece. Um, and uh, just because something is true doesn't always mean that it's um, doesn't always mean that it's fair. So you have to do that read of the story as well. Um, you know, a lot of times um, going back and having follow-up conversations with people that you've interviewed and saying, um, you know, just talking things over for accuracy, for context, um, just making sure that, you know, the notes that you took on the first go-round are, you know, are accurate and that, you know, they didn't misspeak, um, you didn't take something down incorrectly, um, and that you got it sort of just right. I mean, and it's, it's can't underestimate how important and rigorous your fact-checking really needs to be, especially, um, you know, for an investigator, I mean, for all journalism, but I think particularly, um, you know, for the kinds of the, the last question we got, like an investigative piece or something that's a little bit more, um, you know, where people might be, uh, you know, have a lot of feelings about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I print out stories when I have a printer. I don't have one at home. Um, and I can I go through like every noun or every, you know, every fact. Sometimes I'll do footnotes, but it can be, it can be so tedious. Um, but I'll go through and highlight or cross off. And then, you know, that, that can take a day or two sometimes to go through a story. And um, I'll call every single person in the story that's named or even like a big source that explained a piece of a story. And either you know, I'll read them back their quotes and I'll explain the context of how I introduced them and I, how, I, like, how, I, how I brought them into the story and give them like a general outline of what the framing of the story is too. But reading back the quotes to me is really helpful so that I didn't make a mistake. Sometimes you mishear things that happens um, and you'd rather be told that you made a mistake hearing some, some word that they said uh, before it gets published. Um, yeah, some of the stuff I do. Melissa, when you read back quotes to folks, do, do you go through like every source and read back quotes? Are you, how do you choose who every you're going to read back? You, you do every single one? Every, every kind of work you do? Yeah, I mean, for the, for the longer stories, like the stuff I've done in the past couple of months, I haven't because it's been shorter turnarounds. It's all relative. But, um, but yeah, for bigger projects, I'll, go, I'll call every single person back and make sure that they know that they're in the story. We think it's going to run on Friday. Here's, you know, here's the general outline of the story, and here's how you fit in and what I understood that you told me. Like, did I get this right? Um, every single person. Uh, we also, everything gets lawyered. Um, we have a couple of lawyers on staff who read our, our work. Um, they check for, yeah, things like fairness and accuracy and legal stuff. Um, they want to make sure that we don't get sued. Um, yeah, and for, for more uh, controversial or just more adversarial uh, entities that we're dealing with, we might send them like a statement of facts. Uh, it won't, we won't send them like the actual text before it runs, but like, you know, we'll, we'll change the wording to look more like just a fact. <laughs> and here's this fact. We're, we're going to say all of these things and we just want to make sure that we got this right. Um, we might have follow-up questions, but I know I, we, I've done that on a couple of occasions with really difficult um, organizations that we've written about. And then, then, then you take whatever they say. You don't just do it. But if they, if they say, like, actually, you know, I really meant to say blah, blah, blah. And it might make the quote less exciting. But if it comes from, like, a real place and it's, like, factually true, um, you know, I, I, I will let things go. Like, there was, like, I remember a bankruptcy attorney told me something. That, I, I, forget, I forget what the quote was. But it was, really, it was really good and juicy when I read it back. He's like, yeah, I probably said that. But what I really meant was some other thing that like gave shed more light on what he meant the con it was it was better context it was more important to say what he like he meant to say than what he said the first time around so there's you kind of make decisions on each of these cases like do i go with like the more scandalous thing or do i go with like the the more concrete serious thing that he meant and i i tend to be more conservative and i'll go with the 
with like the cor- the correction um if it doesn't change like the point or you know like the main i mean the, if i don't want to let people like say like i didn't mean to talk to you or, or you know like just totally backtrack on a story but for little things i'm really open to negotiation because it makes people really happy it makes people like feel relieved that they know what's coming and it builds more trust and more likely to want to keep talking to me mm-hmm. after the story and a story is not just like i do a story and then i run away and i never revisit this topic again like stories like keep coming back and haunting you for years and it's helpful to have those sources I can call Patrick up and be like, "Hey, like do you know about blah 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 other random thing?" and he'll he'll be more willing to help me because I treated him well the first time around. Eric, are there strategies that you use for fact checking at the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, um, you know, I think number, you know, obviously going over and checking the numbers is extremely important and I like to run those by uh, people again just as I do um, quotes and you know I think it's really important to think about when you differ differentiating your sources a little bit you know if it's you know sort of a person that talks to the media all the time and is really savvy you know, versus you know this is the first time they've ever talked to a reporter I think that that person needs to more care and attention more follow-ups just to make sure you really have it uh, nailed down the other thing is um, asking people that aren't directly involved in the story to give it a read, I think is, is a really important um, thing to do. I, you know, in my world, I can get very bogged down in, in jargon or think everyone understands what the unemployment rate means and, and they don't. And it's great to have people say like, hey, I, that's a lot of numbers and stuff. I don't get it. I don't know what you're saying here. And then take that as honest feedback and, and rewrite it so it meets a general audience. Let's shift gears a little bit. And I'm interested to know a little bit more about how you all got into journalism and where you are now. What, at what point did each of you realize that journalism was something that you wanted to pursue? The moment I met Jeremy Steele? Is that <laughs> the right answer? Um, I mean, for me, it was definitely when I was in college and, and working with you all at the state news, because um, that was a great opportunity to kind of test it out and see if it was something I really enjoyed and, and liked. And, and you could just, I could just, it really clicked with me. I felt like so passionate about it in a way that I didn't um, anything else. So I, I knew that uh, that was for me. And, and in all seriousness, and not only did Jeremy help me get started at the state news, he also helped me get started with my career. So I, I owe him a lot. I wouldn't have ended up at the Oakland County Business Review without Jeremy Steele. Um, I, I think I, I got started in high school. I mean, I worked for the high school paper and you know, I'd worked for the middle school paper and for the elementary school paper. I, I always said I wanted to be a writer, like a fiction writer of some sort, but I really liked the newspaper and writing stories that made the principal mad. Um, I got a lot of delight in that. Like it was, it made, like I found like my place. I never quite fit in in high school, but I felt really, really good about like doing journalism that, you know, made people like pay attention to issues that I cared about. Um, in college, yeah, Jeremy Steele hired me at the state news. Like college was a really great opportunity to get to do the work full time with a bunch of crazy people like Steve, who like gets stress relief from journalism. <laughs> um, yeah. So from early on when I was a teenager, I think. Um, yeah, this is kind of, it's sort of all I've ever sort of wanted to do, um, going back to a pretty young age, but, um, I had bad knees growing up and so I couldn't really do much with sports. So I thought, oh, I'll do 
the Friday morning sports report, you know, that kind of stuff like as a pretty young kid. And, um, you know, some of my first, my first real experience with written journalism though, was at MIPA, MIPA summer camp. And, um, after my, uh, I think it was after my freshman year of high school and took the sports writing class at MIPA, um, at Michigan state and just, you know, sort of fell in love, um, with, with print journalism, you know, and, um, kind of the rest was sort of history. I mean, I really, you know, investigative accountability journalism, um, definitely started to, to grow on me in college and working with you all. And I sort of started off with a high interest in sports. Um, and that sort of morphed into other aspects. And I think the more I've learned about journalism and the different possibilities and ways to use it and the ways to do it, the tools that we have at our disposal, um, from, you know, public records to, to data and, um, you know, it's become more and more fun and interesting and, um, you know, find a j- job that you're passionate about. I mean, that doesn't really feel, uh, this is very cliche, it doesn't really feel like you're working. I mean, and a lot of times because you're, it's, the work is so interesting that you want to do it. Um, and, you know, you feel like you're doing something important. So that helps a lot. I haven't, you know, I've always sort of felt that way and it's it certainly hasn't waned, you know. All, all three of you are at big media organizations that a lot of people kind of dream and aspire to get to. How did you end up getting to those places? What, what, what kind of path did it take? I know you didn't, I know that you didn't just graduate from Michigan state and walk in the door at ProPublica and the New York times, but um, from the wall street journal, what, what did it take to get to where, to where you all are at now? Well, I mean, I'd say it was a lot of building on things, building on experiences, building on, um, you know, the, you know, so, you know, an undergrad, I did work at the state news with all of you. And, and, you know, we all learned a ton. Everybody really encouraged each other to, to do great work at the state news, but also to do internships. I mean, internships were, were a huge way of, of uh, getting a couple steps ahead. So, you know, I, I did a bunch of internships. I think everybody on this call did a bunch of internships and, um, you know, including at the Boston Globe and, and learned, had to make a good impression, you know, met people, you know, got ideas for how to sort of grow as a journalist, but also how to build a career. And, um, you know, got an idea of the kind of journalism that I wanted to do. And so I, you know, and, and wanted to sort of get myself positioned out of college to be able to do the kind of work that, you know, would be meaningful. And so I went to the Toledo Blade, um, was able to get into doing investigative reporting there, and then, you know, kind of wanted to move to New York and, and work in some of the bigger markets. So I moved and worked for Reuters um, and was able to cover Wall Street after the financial crisis. And, um, you know, then moved to the Wall Street Journal and then, you know, to the, to the New York Times. And just sort of one thing built on, you know, on the next. I'm sure there was some good luck along the way and, um, you know, and finding the right stories and just, you know, having that kind of passion for it and building a clip file and, um, you know, all those things really help kind of push things along. You know, everything sort of builds on, builds on itself. I think you got to be also, you know, willing to realize that you have to accept some different paths to get to where you, you ultimately want to go. Um, you know, twice in my career, I, I took a job at a place that I wouldn't have expected and, and it worked out really well. The first was my, my first job. I, it was literally a startup magazine. It doesn't even exist anymore, but it was such a great experience. And that helped me get through the Detroit News. And I was doing front page stories for the Detroit News and I decided to take a chance at, um, it wasn't the Wall Street Journal. It was like a sub, sub entity of Dow Jones um, covering the exciting world of bankruptcy court, um, which, you know, was seemed boring and tedious and uh, was the greatest thing I ever could do because I had to learn a really, really, really high standard of journalism. And you know what? There was really, they were 
once you get passionate about learning and reporting, you can do so many different beats and, and you can do them well. And then of course it's, it's proving yourself um, at every step of the way and then advocating for yourself to, to move up and get other opportunities. I, I, I didn't take like a straight up trajectory to where I am. Um, I did the internship racket in college too. And during one of the internships, I got sent abroad to do a story that related to immigration, the stuff that I care about. And um, because of that story, I was able to get a grant to spend a year anywhere I wanted in Latin America doing reporting. And so I did it. And I had like offers to go to big, big national publications. I'm like, screw it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go, you know, figure out what it means to like live in this part of the world that I care about and that my family came from. So I spent a year in Nicaragua, like the poorest Spanish-speaking country in, in Latin America in that, in that moment. Um, and that was, it was a really interesting year to go down there and to do some reporting. But I came back and like the economy had crashed and like the jobs that I had promised the Miami Herald, et cetera, were like not existent. So I, um, I took a job in a little community I had never heard of in Washington state called Yakima. That was a farm worker community. And I went because the editor there, um, just from email exchanges and the way that she described the job posting, it sounded to me like she saw the potential for somebody to come and do stories, like enterprise stories about farm workers and gangs and things that I didn't know a whole lot about, but um, I care about the people who do, do farm work, about, about you know, a lot of undocumented Mexican labor. Um, so I went out there and it was the best experience I could have asked for. And I made the best friends that I, I still have to this day in this little community in the middle of nowhere. I spent a year and a half there and I could have spent my whole life working there. But then like my old jobs like called back, like the economy had improved enough. So I, I went back to Miami. Um, and uh, but the job I had on the English language side no longer was there. My old boss had moved to the Spanish language side. He's like, I can hire you in Spanish. And I'm like, I don't know how to write in Spanish. I grew up in this country. And he's like, we'll figure it out. Like, you mean, I can speak Spanish. Like, okay. So I went there and I spent four, four years in Miami. Um, I improved my written Spanish a ton. Um, and I wrote about all sorts of crazy things. I didn't write about immigration, which is what I really cared about. So the, the political uh, context of Miami is just different than the rest of the country. But I wrote about politics and like absentee ballot fraud and like just the political hijinks that make South Florida so ridiculous and special. Um, I learned a lot about investigative reporting in that position. But at some point, you know, I met my husband. We wanted to move back to the Midwest. He's from Chicago. And so he got a job first and we moved. And I was like, I can just call the Chicago Tribune and get a job. Like, I'm good enough. I had the confidence that I was like, of course. And the Tribune wasn't hiring. Um, so I was like, what do I do? Like, I had, I had, I had this path. Like, and suddenly, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I spent a few months unemployed and I took, took the first job I could get, which was at a small education, no, nothing magazine. Um, and I covered schools for a few years and I, I wasn't that passionate about it, but it was a job. And then that magazine collapsed and turned into its sister publication, which was a really difficult place to work, um, which for reasons I won't get on here. But I, I thought, this was just a few years ago, I thought I need to quit journalism because I can't find work that brings me joy. And I got pregnant and I'm like, I'm, I'm just gonna like have my baby, go on maternity leave and then go become a lawyer or a social worker because I just can't, I can't do, I can't find a journalism job in Chicago. Um, and, and then ProPublica came calling, like out of nowhere, essentially. Uh, it's like they had seen the work that I had done in the past. And, and you know, you, 
it's important to like be a good human inside of places and like people will care about you and watch your back and like remember you like pro like a lot of places do a lot of background checks on people before they hire them we'll call everybody they've ever worked with and luckily like i i I left some goodwill behind some places where I'd been, maybe not in Chicago. That was, it was a difficult couple of years here, but um, they ended up bringing me in for an interview when I was eight months pregnant. Um, I didn't even apply for the job because I was like, who's going to hire this person, right? Who's going to hire me? And, and, and they did, they offered the job. I had the data that I had the kid. Um, And so it's been, it's been great. It's been a surprise to be here. We are almost out of time, but I want to, want to leave you with all, kind of one last question to think about. Um, is there something that, that you've learned now about journalism and about yourselves that you wish you would have known when you were just getting started? Well, I mean, sure. I mean, I, I think there's a, you're hopefully as a journalist or whatever you do in your career, you're, you're constantly learning and sort of analyzing your approach and all of this. And I, I think that, I mean, we've, I guess it feels like it's come up a number of times. Melissa just said something about being a good human and like being, you know, and I think that kind of stuff is really um, over the years, like, you know, um, taking a like, especially a moment like this, taking a moment to slow down when you're calling people to talk to them about how, you know, any aspect of this pandemic, like just making sure you take the time to like do the human thing, like talk to and, and care. And, and, you know, the conversations sometimes just wander on and that's good. That's a good part of, um, you know, of, of how we should be you know, early on in your career. Sometimes as a journalist, you're, you're on deadline. You're just trying to like get the story file to get on to the next thing. And, and um, you know, that's okay. It's a normal part of, of getting used to things, but by taking that extra minute to actually connect with people and connect with, um, with sources, connect with colleagues, connect with the world around you as a journalist. And, you know, you're trying to get records from a records custodian and like remembering that's like somebody trying to do a job, you know, and that you're just, um, you know, slow down and a little bit and just try to, relax and be, uh, you know, and, and, and take the time to, to, to talk it over and, and um, be, be really thoughtful in how you interact with everybody. Yeah, I think I would say that's really good. Um, also, like, you're going to fail sometimes. You're going to, like, make mistakes and beat yourself up over it. But, like, I remember this, this old editor was I, I interact with a few times told me like there's always a newspaper tomorrow like I mean, maybe there won't be like you know in a few years but um like it's just one moment and you can get past it and you learn from it you go back and remember it but don't like dwell on it and kill yourself like you're gonna screw up but then you can not screw up the next time and then you can help somebody else not screw up too so it's it's okay to make mistakes you'll you only learn i think when you when you do them um but just pick yourself up and it'll be okay. I think I've learned and I wish I would have known more to just be a little bit more patient, even with, with your career and your expectations. Like you're going to have a lot of opportunities to get there. And if you know, you're not on the front page right away, you're not at the place you want to be right away. um, Just, we've all been there. Do the best work you can where you are. And, and I think you'll, you'll get noticed in the longer run. And I think that's what I've seen a lot of people that have burned out if they just, I, I need to be in the front page story. I need to be covering the White House or whatever it is they want to do covering the, the Detroit Tigers. And it's going to take time to do that. Um, but if you do really great work there, I think you'll find it to be a rewarding career. Um, and then you'll get where you want to go as long as you work hard at it. Steve and Eric and Melissa, thank you so much for your time today and 
sharing your thoughts with, with all of us. We really appreciate it. Stay safe and stay well. And I hope that everybody else will join us again for our next episode. Everybody take care. All right, thank you. Thanks. This has been a better press for a better world brought to you by the Michigan Interscholastic Press Association. Learn more about our workshops, contests, and other programs for high school and middle school journalism students and their advisors at mipamsu.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.